Okay, well, welcome to what I believe is our last class in the basics of the BCP series, uh, week 15, which is a little bit more than I intended to do, but, uh, but not too bad, not too bad for the whole prayer book. Um, we're going to finish up the ordinal by talking about the uh, uh, consecration of a bishop. And so you can find this on page 549, uh, page 549 in your prayer book. And so if you all remember, um, last week we talked about the ordinal in general. We talked about um, some of the history of ordination rites. And we just we went over the uh, services for ordaining deacons and priests. And today we're going to go over the form uh, of ordaining or consecrating a bishop. So now I have never been part of um, or even attended a, uh, a service to consecrate a new bishop. Um, they don't happen too terribly often in our circles. Um, I think both the, uh, the Anglican Church North America and the Church of Nigeria have a uh, kind of a moratorium on new diocese these days. So um, that means usually only when there's um, vacancies because somebody's retiring or occasionally for a suffragan bishop um, do, do we, do we get any, but so again, I've, I've not been to one of these, but, um, it's, it's very interesting. Some of the stuff that happens anyway. So as we, um, discuss with the other two services, uh, the ordination or consecration of a bishop occurs within the context of the communion, um, communion service almost, almost every time. And in this case, we have, um, either the archbishop or, the presiding bishop, depending on your jurisdiction, basically the primate of your province of your jurisdiction is going to preside over the, um, the service of consecrating new bishops. And he will be assisted um, almost every time by at least two other bishops, if not more. And, and that's really a period that we see happening very, very early in the church is that they always want three bishops in order to consecrate a new bishop. <clears throat> so on page 549, we begin with, um, with our collect. So uh, we, can, we can look at this. And it says um, in, the, in the rubric that the presiding bishop or some other bishop appointed by the bishops pr present shall begin the communion service in which this shall be the collect. Almighty God, who by thy son, Jesus Christ, didst give to thy holy apostles, many excellent gifts, and didst charge them to feed thy flock. Give grace, we beseech thee, to all bishops, the pastors of thy church, that they may diligently preach thy word and duly administer the godly discipline thereof, and grant to the people that they may obediently follow the same, that all may receive the crown of everlasting glory through the same thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have this, um, this connection this apostolic connection is emphasized here. Um, we, we do believe um, as Anglicans in apostolic succession. Um, what that means is not always 100% as clear as it is in uh, Roman Catholic circles um, because of their understanding of, this, of the sacrament of ordination. But um, we certainly do require um, you know, everybody to be, to, to have that, that pedigree, so to speak, of, of, of 
bishops going back, you know, a bishop that has been ordained by bishops. Nobody gets to have a bishop out of, um, out of a vacuum. And uh, so that connection to the apostles is, is from that. And if there ever is kind of a questionable link in the chain, it's usually corrected um, later on down the line. So um, we do see that. Uh, we see that um, one of the things that we're praying for in the collect is that the bishops may diligently preach the word. So we don't have bishops who are only there to be administrators. You know, bishops are to be preachers. They're to be pastors, it says later on. Um, they're to execute the discipline of the church. So uh, one, of the, one of the functions of bishops that is unique to them is that they are the kind of the final arbiters of church discipline. Um, so if, if, for example, um, I had cause to bar anybody from the communion table, a member you know, basically excommunicate somebody, um, I, I must get that on the bishop's desk within two weeks of, of, of that happening. And the bishop can overturn that. You know, he, he, he basically has to approve or, um, or veto that decision. Um, so the bishops administer the godly discipline. Um, and that is especially true of disciplining the clergy. Part of the reason why having bishops is good is to, is to um, have accountability to the, to the clergy and theoretically anyway, bishops being accountable to each other. Um, and, uh, there's, there's been some stuff that's happened in, uh, some of our more conservative Anglican diocese, um, in, in the ACNA recently that shows that the system does work. Um, it's, it's never good when that has to happen, but the system does work. So that's, that's good. And, um, this collect historically was adapted from the collect for St. Peter's day. The idea being that, um, Peter kind of being the head of the apostles, um, you know, really we, we see all of that kind of in connection with Peter. Uh, we have a couple of options for the epistle. So the first one is 1 Timothy 3.1, and that's Paul's admonition um, specifically to bishops. You know, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And then it talks about what that needs to look like. And we're going to see that our vows that the bishop's vows later on in the service come directly from that passage. We also have um, Acts chapter 22 for the epistle where Paul um, vindicate, he, 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 he provides a vindication and a description of his apostolic ministry as, and we see that this letter that he writes is addressed to the overseers and overseers being um, literally the bishops. Um, originally, this was the, in, in the, in the, sixth, in the um, older prayer books, pre-1662, this was the epistle in the priest section, but because of that language of overseers, it gets moved in 1662 over here to the bishops. And then for the gospels, uh, again, because this is a communion service, um, and, and you'll notice in the, in the rubrics, by the way, that the um, that we have bishops, uh, you know, different a different bishop who's not the presider, uh, you know, not 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 the um, archbishop or the or the one who's conducting the service will read the epistle, and then another bishop will read the gospel. So all of the people involved in the communion service are supposed to be bishops per per the rubrics of the twenty eight. Um, the the first gospel here, there's actually three options for the gospel. 
The first one is um, in John 21, where Peter's restored after his denial and after the resurrection. And so the Lord restores Peter and, you know, it's that threefold, you know, uh, Peter, do you love me? And then he tells him to uh, feed the sheep and he tells them to, um, uh, he said, Fe feedeth my lambs, feed my sheep. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, and basically that, that sort of thing. Um, the second one is from John 22, beginning at verse 19. And that's Jesus' appearance to the apostles after the resurrection. And this is another one of those that gets moved to the bishop's section in 1662 um, because of it being addressed to the apostles themselves. And so that, that connection to the bishops. And something that happens is, um, just historically speaking, prior to 1662 and, that, and the restoration after the English Civil War, we still have this strong element within the English church that is agitating for a Presbyterian form of government. They don't think that the Reformation went far enough. And, um, you know, nowadays we call them the Puritans, but some of that line was a little bit fuzzy prior to the English Civil War. What happens in the English Civil War is that the Puritans, the Presbyterian faction, um, executing the king and executing the archbishop and just waging this terrible bloody war led to when there was the restoration of the monarchy and the episcopate, just absolute ill will towards these guys for obvious reasons. And so, um, yeah, they, they're going to make sure that there's absolutely no way that um, we can confuse the office of bishop and priest after that point. And the 1662 prayer book is the revision after the restoration. And then we have um, the third gospel, which is um, in Matthew 28, um, the commissioning of the apostles, um, the great commission passage. Uh, and again, that was one of those that was moved from the priest section also in 1662. Okay, so um, questions, comments on the, on the propers that are used at the consecration at this point. Okay, well then let's let's move on. We then move to the vows, and um, we have two bishops in the rubrics presenting it to the presiding bishop or to the archbishop, um, who who or or to the bishop who's standing in for the for whoever the primate is, um, and they they do the presentation. So so again we have all of the functions of this service are really being done by other bishops. This is a service of bishops um, promoting one to their, to their order, basically. And um, so the, the uh, let's, let's skip from there to page 554 and look at the vows themselves. Um, the, these, these first parts don't really tell us much of anything, you know, theologically, it's just kind of going through the, through the official motions of, of presenting that bishop. Um, and so we have the, we have the vows. Are you persuaded that you are truly called to this ministration according to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ and according to the order of the church? I am so persuaded you would answer. Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain all doctrine required as necessary for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? 
And are you determined of the same holy scriptures to instruct the people committed to your charge and to teach or maintain nothing is necessary to eternal salvation, but that which you shall be persuaded may be concluded or proved by the same. I am so persuaded, etc. Will you faithfully, faithfully exercise yourself in the scriptures, call upon God by prayer for the true understanding of the same, so that you may be able by them to teach and exhort with wholesome doctrine and withstand and convince gainsayers, I will do so by the help of God. Are you ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away from the church all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word, and both privately and openly to call upon and encourage others to do the same? I am ready, the Lord being my helper. Let's stop there real quick. So we have, um, once again, this foundation on the scriptures, right? The scriptures form the most important part of the bishop's job, just as they did for the deacon and for the priest before them. Um, we we uh, have this requirement to teach and exhort and preach, again, only those things that are based on the scriptures. So, so we, we, we want to keep everything always close to the scriptures, and that includes both the bishops as well as the priests and deacons. Um, we have this, this idea of banishing the strange teaching um, at the top of page 555, uh, drive away from the church all erroneous and strange doctrine necessary or contrary rather to God's word and both privately and openly call upon and encourage others to do the same. Once again, we see that, that exercising discipline is a key function of the bishop's office. And it's not that the priest doesn't ex exercise discipline, but it's not as definitive of the priestly office as it is in the bishop's office. That's just something that the bishop, because he's the guy at the top, because the buck stops there, he needs to be the chief disciplinarian of the, of the, of the, uh, um, of the diocese of, of the church. Um, let's move on. Uh, will you deny all ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world that you may show yourself in all things an example of good works unto others that the adversary may be ashamed having nothing to say against you? So we have this, uh, you know, this blameless living, um, this, this exemplary living, godly living, and all that comes from what we see in first Timothy, um, in first Timothy three, um, will you maintain the set forward as much as a lie in you quietness, love, and peace among all men and diligently exercise such discipline as by the authority of God's word and by the order of the church is committed unto you. So with the discipline though, doesn't mean that, that the bishop is to be a tyrant. Um, but like we talked about last week with the priests, he needs to be a peacemaker. He needs to be someone that's promoting concord, um, somebody that's promoting um, reconciliation and, uh, and, and not be someone that's stirring up trouble. And then we have, um, will you be faithful in ordaining, sending, and laying hands upon others? Um, I will so be by the help of God. Will you sow yourself gentle and merciful for Christ's sake to the poor and needy people? into all strangers and, and destitute. So that first thing gives us those specific bishop duties, those things that are unique to the bishop, ordaining, um, planting new churches, laying on of hands, both, uh, both, both in terms of confirmation and ordination. But the bishop can't uh, just be in his, in his, in his uh, ivory tower. He needs to also um, you know, be there for the least of these as well. 
Um, questions, comments on the vows? Okay, well, like I told you last week, this is probably gonna be a relatively short class uh, for us. Let's, let's go ahead and turn the page. Um, we again have the, uh, the Veni Creator Spiritus, like we talked about, we talked about last week. Um, the only bit of medieval uh, hymnody that's that's in um, that's in that's in a uh, in a in a non-prose form, in an actual hymn form, in, in, a, in a metered form, in our uh, in our prayer book, um, five fifty-eight. Receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a bishop in the Church of God, now committed unto thee by the imposition of our hands, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And remember that thou stir up the grace of God, which is given thee by this imposition of our hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and soberness. Uh, so the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit being being active in, um, in, in the, the ministry as well as in the consecration. Um, you know, hopefully by this time, whoever is being elected and being consecrated as bishop is someone that it's been obvious that this is someone that the spirit has chosen. And um, then they present the bishop a Bible, and with this exhortation, give heed unto reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Think upon things contained in this book, be diligent in them, that the increase coming thereby may be manifest unto all men. For by so doing, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Be to the flock of Christ a shepherd and not a wolf. Feed them, devour them not. Hold up the weak, heal the sick, bind up the broken, bring again the outcast, seek the lost. Be so merciful that you be not too remiss. Um, so minister discipline that you forget not mercy, that when the chief shepherd shall appear, you may receive the never fading crown of glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this shows that there's a major balancing act that goes into the ministry of the bishop, but it's a balancing act that um, is kept by um, by always having that foundation scriptures by being soaked in the scriptures. Uh, that's, that's, it's a tough, it's a tough job. It's, it's a really high calling and, and nobody's really worthy to it. Uh, we talked about last week, how it almost became a kind of a thing in the fourth and fifth centuries for, uh, bishops to write a story about how they tried to run away from the call. <laughs> and, uh, and this is, this is part of why. Um, and so then we have, um, a really neat closing prayer. We don't need to get into that. And that's the end of the consecrating of bishops. Uh, any, any, any questions or comments? And then we'll look at the litany and suffrages um, on, on beginning on page 560 and maybe call it a night. Okay, well, let's turn to page 560 and look at the litany or suffrages for ordinations. So um, this is a special version of the great litany that's done um, only on ordinations. I've had the privilege to chant it at a couple of different ordinations. Um, and it's based on the same kind of thing that we see in the litany that we did last week to open up, open up Holy Communion or conclude the morning prayer, depending on which, uh, which service you joined us for, um, that, we, that we use during Lent, that we really could use at any time. Um, but this one's especially for, for ordinations. It's usually chanted with the same tones. Um, and, and what we see is that there are different, there's slightly different things 
when it's a deacon or a priest versus when it's a consecration of a bishop. But it, but it's basically the main thing that's done um, in terms of, you know, it's a major section in the, in the service. And I believe this is where oftentimes we do have, um, someone was asking about, about the uh, candidates for ordination being prostrate. I think Delaney was asking that last week. And um, I believe it's, now that I think about it, it's during the litany that that happens. Um, but it's pretty neat. It's, 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 a neat, it's a neat bit of prayer. Um, it's good to see. We also have in the ordinal a form of consecration of a church or chapel and a form of an office of instituting a new minister. Um, I don't recall that that's the service that was being used yeah, well, actually it was when I was installed as the rector, now that I, now that I look it over. Um, you know, th these are very short little offices that we would, we would attach to Holy Communion or morning prayer, depending on what service is being done on that Sunday. Um, I know there was a consecration service when I was at Christ our King. I, became, I was ordained a deacon about a week after their, their current building was consecrated by the bishop. Um, so, which was, which was pretty neat, but um, it was not using this form. So I've never, I've never been part one that uses this form. That's, so that's the ordinal. Any, uh, any questions, comments on the ordinal? And if not, any questions or comments on the, uh, everything we've talked about over the last 15 weeks, all the, all the prayer book as we have it in the 28th. So you don't want to rack your brains for a, uh, three and a half months worth of stuff, almost four. Well, I think while, while y'all are thinking and um, before we, we close it off, um, what I think I'd like to do for the uh, oh, I, I, I see a Delaney and hold hold on hold on to that um, for just a bit, Delaney, and then I, I will uh, I will call on you. Um, I think what we're going to do for the next two weeks is um, you know kind of the rest of Advent is we're, we're, I want to do a very short series just on um, how the prayer book and kind of Marian devotion might interact. Um, that's especially for folks of the more Catholic stream. Um, that's a big thing. Um, you know, the too long didn't read version of this is the prayer book doesn't say very much, but what it says is very important, um, more theologically than devotionally. And so that's what I want to talk about. I was, I was a little, um, not annoyed, but there was some irony in that, um, some, uh, some of my, my friends who have a, a, a very, very Anglo-Catholic podcast called The Sacramentalist, they're doing a mini thing on, um, on, on Mary during Advent. And I was already planning to do, do this, but the difference is they're totally doing all the, all the Anglo-Catholic thing. We're just gonna stick to what the prayer book um, has to say and what that might in, inform us within this bigger tradition. Okay, so that's what we're gonna do for the two weeks, possibly three. Um, we will definitely take the week off between Christmas and New Year's and possibly the week before Christmas, but I'll let y'all know. Okay, so uh, Delaney, you had, you had a question or a comment um, throughout the stuff. So then what's the prayer book that they use at Our Lady of Atonement? Because it's not the same one at all. 
Okay, so Our Lady of Atonement is not an Anglican church. Um, they are what is what used to be called an Anglican Use Catholic Church. Um, now they're part of what's known as the um, oh the Personal Ordinariate of something or another. Well, but basically, it's the it's the um, the the Anglican looking Roman Catholics, right? So mostly they're former Anglicans, and they have um, but but they are but they are Roman Catholic. Um, they had their own prayer book back in the day. Um, Our Lady of Atonement was one of the first Anglican use parishes in the United States, um, I think from back in the 1980s. And so they did have a book of common prayer that was an adaptation, um, if, if memory serves, of the 1979 book of common prayer. All that's been chucked out the window now that they have this new thing that Pope Benedict set up, what was it, 10 years ago? with the ordinariate. They have only recently set in concrete their form for Holy Communion. They're not gonna be having a full Book of Common Prayer as far as I understand. Um, it's, that's just not the way that, that's just not the way Roman Catholics do things. And so their communion service is kind of a hybrid of the 1928 and um, the Roman Catholic Novus Ordo. I did know a, a, a priest who once upon a time was in our diocese who was using that for their service, adapted a little bit. And um, I don't like it. And, and, and it's, it's, not, it's not just for theological reasons. It's just that what ends up happening is by, by squishing these two different things together, you end up having some inconsistencies and some weird not flowings um yeah not not a big fan but but yeah that's that's what they're doing but my understanding is that hasn't even been fully finalized they kind of have like they're in the process of getting towards the finalization of that my assumption is for the when it comes to kind of their their um their version of the daily offices they're either using the breviary you know the roman catholic breviary or possibly one of those Anglo-Catholic um, adaptations from back in the day um, that's sometimes called like the Anglican breviary. Um, I have a feeling that, and I also, I also have a feeling that a lot of those ordinary parishes have not fully complied with what they're supposed to be doing in their organization yet because they were kind of doing their own thing when they were Episcopalians. And so like, like for example, I know that, um, uh, both when Monsignor Steenson was the ordinary, basically the bishop who was not a bishop of that jurisdiction. Um, and then now when Bishop Lopes, not Lopez, it's Lopes, which is weird to me, but um, yeah, Bishop Lopes um, is now over it. Both of them wanted to keep the ordinary at parishes from doing Latin mass because they're saying, hey, if this is English use, if this is Anglican use, um, you know, Latin is not part of your thing. You know, if you want to do Latin mass, there's, you know, regular, you know, local diocese can do that with, you know, with the bishop's approval. And I know that a ton of those parishes basically said to the bishop, no, <laughs> We're gonna, we've been doing Latin mass. We're going to keep doing Latin mass. And I figure that's between them and their bishop at this point. So. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. So that's our that's our Lady of Atonement. They look like us, but they are not. They are not. They are not Anglican. Tina. Um, okay, so I've been kind of reflecting, I guess, on some of the things we've learned in the class. And thank you so much for this, by the way. I honestly think the prayer book now has kind of become so much my daily routine that it's just really awesome. Um, I, I use a lot of the time the cradle of prayer um, to kind of guide it or whatever. But then, you know, when I can, I have the actual, you know, um, book and, and things like that. But I, I've been reflecting on some of the things that we've learned, like, like throughout the week, right? So like there's certain days that we do more prayers than others or like on Friday, the litany is usually um, done. Um, and then I remember you saying also that on Friday was like kind of like more of a fast day mm -hmm. and then Sunday was more of a feast day um, according to the tradition. So I was wondering if those were, I mean, maybe you said this already and maybe I just missed it, um, but it, are those because of the general thing that, you know, Jesus died on Friday and then rose again on Sunday. Is that kind of like the thinking behind that? Or at least that that's what was my thought. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, every, every Friday is a little good Friday. Every Sunday is a little Easter. Um, so yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and that's, that's why um, it's not, it's not specified in, in the rubrics of the 1928. Um, it is in the 1662 that the litany um, is to be added on Fridays. I think in 1662 also Wednesdays and Sundays for morning prayer. Um, but, um, and yeah, and as early as, oh gosh, second or third century, I mean, it's very, very early on, we see that Wednesdays and Fridays kind of become customary um, days of prayer or a, a special days of prayer and fasting um, among the Christians. And I, I remember, I, I don't remember which early, early, early post-apostolic work I read this in. It, it might've been the, the, um, the Didache, but it might've been another one of those very early ones, um, where they, they basically talk about, they, they almost set it up in contradistinction of what the Jews do. Because <laughs> at the time, the Jewish practice, I think, was um, was Thursdays and Tuesdays, and I don't know why. I don't. I, I once upon a time I knew why, um, but but basically, yeah, it ends up being every Wednesday is a little Ash Wednesday, every Friday is a little a little um, Good Friday, and every Sunday is a little Easter. Um, that Wednesday being a little Ash Wednesday is kind of fallen by the wayside for most of the church, including by the 1920s in in in, uh, in our circles as well. Um, but, uh, and, you know, for a lot of the church nowadays, you know, since, since the 20, later 20th century, even Friday's kind of fallen by the wayside as being a customary day of fasting. But um, we, 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 try to, we try to keep it in some way. If in no other way, um, then um, we, like to, we like to add the litany on Fridays. And, and you'll, as you pointed out, creator, cradle of prayer. And I don't know if they always have, but I know that at least in the last year, I've noticed that they always do on Fridays. And the reason why I don't know if they had before that is just because I wasn't using it as much um, in previous years and I just wasn't paying attention. So th this might've been the way they've been doing it forever. 
Yeah, well, the Wednesday thing, I, like I, I think I shared with you by messenger that one um, thing that I listened to about um, there being a get together during the plague on Wednesdays for the church mm -hmm. to fast and to pray. And like they didn't think Sunday was enough. So then they made it a day like on Wednesday and like people would even get off from work. Like there would be no work on that day so that they could come together and pray and fast for the plague um, to be over. Um, at least, you know, that's what I remember from that teaching. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And I was reading just the other day. Um, I think this is 17th century post-restoration um, in, 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 in the Anglican church, in, in the church in England. Um, for Advent, one of the bishops and, and archbishops for, for a particular period of time said, okay, what we're going to do this Advent is restore the custom of having um, not just the public gathering, but, but actual preaching on Wednesdays and Fridays as an, in addition to Sundays. Um, and, and, and the whole idea that, you know, when you read this, this thing from whichever bishop talking to his diocese at the time, was that okay? This is an ancient practice, and we're kind of bringing it back because of, we're you know what's going on in our time now. Um, so I, I think it is one of those things that kind of um, pops in and out as as the church feels necessary. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Any 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 anybody else? Anybody else? Go ahead, Pam. Oh, you're, you're muted. I, know, you I was go. just going to say that um, reading with this consecrated bishops, everything that they talked about for him in the vows were exactly everything that we have learned in our Bible studies. I mean, it's just a culmination of all of the, the doctrine in the Bible, all of our studies of how to be a Christian. And I thought it was so appropriate. It's just like, it for me, it just said, you know, Obviously, he's been chosen by the Spirit to be yeah. the leader. So I, I found it thought it was very comforting. So I look at it a little differently, you know. So that we're to attain, aspire to that as well. So just what they say. Yeah, absolutely. One of, one of the things we do see is that most of the stuff going on in these ordination services aren't really anything spectacular to the to the to the vocational ministry. I mean, a lot of it is. Um, just the stuff that all Christians are supposed to be doing anyway. Now there are some some extra duties. I mean, all you know, ordinary Christians aren't 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 called to minister word and sacraments. Aren't going to be, you know, like the bishop laying on hands for uh, you know obvious reasons. But um, in terms of of the the godly living, the the rootedness in Scripture, this is something that should be for everybody, um, not not just for the the guys in the funny collar. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good observation. All right. Well, um, I think I'm ready for uh, to call it an evening. Then we are we are doing this at just about a half an hour this time, which is the way we usually do it when we're in person. And um, yeah, so next week and the week after, we'll um, we'll we'll do a little a little series on 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 Mary in the Prayer Book possibly spill that over to a third week. Um, and then we, when the new year comes around, um, we will start going through the offices of instruction specifically as preparation for 
um, as soon as vac the, vaccine, the vaccine is around and folks are kind of all meeting back together again, especially those of y'all that are kind of in the queue for this <laughs> to get uh, folks received and confirmed. Um, because we, we, got, we got a good number of folks that, um, that are waiting in the wings, but we've, uh, the pandemic has kind of uh, uh, derailed that. And we will, we will put Bishop Scott to work because um, when it comes to, to, uh, to local confirmations, that is gonna be something that he, he'll be doing. So, all right, well, thank you all very much. And I will um, uh, end the video or end the audio now.